This show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 185 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. In this episode, Jason is talking to James Thomas, Director of Research for the high-frequency trading firm Headlands Technologies. Well, James, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. This is um, really cool to have you. Um, it's not often you get to talk to somebody who's inside the uh, dark labyrinth of a high-frequency trading firm. <laughs> well, it sounds much cooler when you uh, put it that way than when I talk to my wife about my job. So. <laughs> You just tell her, bye, honey, I'm off to the dark labyrinth. Uh, I wish, I wish. It's not, it's not nearly that exciting. Yeah. So. Well, um, so I, the way this came together, actually, is that I, a good friend of mine works for your company, um, Headlands Technologies, and I guess he sort of hooked this up. I'm just curious from your end, how did this, how did this come together? Well, um, I, it, uh, it, Ken, who's the friend of yours and who uh, works um, for my group, um, mentioned that you would be interested in talking to me. And so I listened to some of the podcasts and it's a very interesting mix of stuff between kind of very, you know, computer focused stuff. Um, and then everything else that kind of relates to that, including issues of trading and stuff. And I have a computer background, I have a PhD in computer science. Um, so it seemed like a kind of an interesting forum to talk about some stuff. Right. Well, cool. Yeah. Um, I, I, when he, when Ken first emailed me about it, I was really uh, pleasantly surprised that that this could happen um, because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of interest in this subject, and uh, one of the reasons is because it's so secretive. Um, so just yeah. to get a chance to talk to uh, someone inside the industry is really cool. And I, I know there's a lot of stuff that we can't really talk about in too much depth, and that um, you're just gonna have to say something like no comment <laughs> or whatever. But uh, We'll just kind of do what we can. Unfortunately, that is the that is the. I come from an academic background, and that's the thing I like least about the the industry, is the secrecy aspect of it. But it, it unfortunately, it is there for good reason. Yeah, yeah. So why don't you um why don't you tell us a little bit about how you how you got into the industry? I think that might be a good place to start. So I um uh, how far back would you like me to go? I don't know. Like, as far back as you want. Anything that's interesting. We got we got time. So yeah. So I um uh. As an undergrad, I was very interested in kind of computer science and cognitive science, mm-hmm. and so I kind of did my own thing and ended up studying um, basically philosophy, of computer science, and linguistics with a with the intent to kind of go into thinking about cognitive science. I ended up not getting my computer science degree at the last moment because I had to take compiler construction, which I hated. And once I got into grad school, I I, I felt okay dropping the class and not getting a computer science degree. Um, okay. Anyway, after some time, I ended up at uh, Carnegie Mellon in the PhD program. And the thing that really drove me at that point was this notion of multi-agent systems. Um, you know, the kind of stuff that Santa, the Santa Fe Institute talks about of, you know, kind of interacting, you know, interacting, like lots of small interacting participants in an environment and what, you know, what kind of emergent behavior comes out of that. Um, I had some background in economics as well that had always interested me. And so I started looking more and more about the kind of multi-agent approaches to economics. Um, 
and that is a, that that's an that's an interesting world, and a lot of that leads to a lot of that leads to kind of simulations of markets and stuff. And at that point, I started thinking more and more about finance, and I got drawn more, deeper and deeper. And my earlier background in linguistics kind of paid off in that I decided to write my PhD thesis on using financial forecast financial forecasting based on uh, text data, which right. at okay. the time. Which is- the, which is like the kind of stuff that autonomy does, right? That sort of um, what they call it, unstructured data analysis or something. Yeah, well, there's a lot of people. I mean, there's a lot of people that do this, and there's a lot of approaches. And back then, there wasn't really much public um, public stuff about uh, text and finance. And as I now know, there wasn't really much private stuff being done. Um, but that's what I started thinking about for my thesis problem. I ended up being, um, I ended up going out to work for a startup in uh, Pasadena, actually called Codexa, which wanted to sit. It wanted to be the thing that sat between all the text in the world and a trader, and it would intelligently filter and process the text um, to kind of oh. give people. Sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, well, well, um, I'm I'm blanking. Who was the guy? Who was the CEO of Codexa? David David, David Lineweber. Yeah, yeah, I I've met him once yeah. actually. I interviewed yes. <laughs> one time with David yeah. Lineweber. Um, back yeah. and yeah, he had a little office right there on Green Street, I think, for a while. Um, yeah, yeah, I was, I was basically, I basically became the the head research guy of his startup. Um, oh, wait, 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 just for quick, this is this is, I know this is kind of uh, kind of a strange topic, but when what year were you there working? Uh, it would have been, I think, um, two thousand and two thousand one. Yeah, because I think I actually went to interview with him right around 2001, 2002. And, <laughs> I, and, and after they, I remember doing the C, this long C++ uh, interview, like take home problem. And then I came it back and the guy's like, yeah, you're the only one who ever completed it, much less got it right. And by the yeah. way, we just lost our charter, so we're going out of business. <laughs> so, well, the company, it did, it did, impl- it, did impl- it was kind of ahead of its time and it did kind of implode, right? It, it, we kind of, it, the, you know, the the big bust, the big stock market bust happened while we were trying to get things going. And at that point, you know, had the timing been different, we might have been bought out by somebody, but it just didn't kind of work out. Right. Right. Um, and so, um, but it was a very interesting experience. And uh, um, one of the um, one of the guys there had had some real quant experience on Wall Street. And so he asked me as 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 Codexa, after Codexa imploded, if I wanted to start um a fund with them. And of course, you know, that's, that's exactly what I wanted. That, that problem really fascinated me. And so we tried, took a shot at it and it kind of didn't really work. So I went back and finished up grad school. Um, oh. and then I, um, at that point, you know, you know, it came out of a, with a computer science PhD. I'd actually done a lot of work, um, which now I realize is not particularly interesting, but at the time I thought was really interesting on uh, text processing and finance. And um, then I ended up getting a job for a company called Cooper Neff, which is, um, was one of the big um, kind of founders of um, index arbitrage trading. They were a big, um, um, they were you, big, uh, futures, big futures uh, clearing firm, right? They're not, they're not really a clearing. I mean, they might've had some clearing firm attached to them, but their primary business model was um, index arbitrage, which is okay. basically making markets and futures and then closing the risk intelligently with the um, kind of underlying um, stocks. Well, but before we get any further down the road, I just want to sure. just ask you a little bit more so about your education. So where, where were you doing your PhD? Was it Caltech? Uh, Carnegie Mellon. 
Carnegie Mellon. Okay, so you just you just came out to do this uh, this gig with Codex or something. That's why you came. Yeah, out. what had happened is a friend of mine that worked at Fidelity heard David's like you know pitch, and he said my friend is doing this exact thing. You should talk to him. And so I came out basically as a summer intern, and then kind of became the research guy. Did Did you happen to do any work with First Quadrant? Because I know they're like a big sort of hedge fund kind of, uh, kind of I don't know operation like a few blocks from Codexa. No, because um, David used to work for First Quadrant for a long time. That's why he was in Pasadena, I think. Mm, and um, okay. but I didn't actually work with them at all. Okay, okay. So, in, in did it was just sort of a break. I mean, you took like what, like a year off or something from from your PhD. Well, I, took, well, I, t- I spent a summer there, and then they asked me to stay. And it was a hard decision because at the time, had the company taken off, I would have never gone back and finished my PhD. Um, but I, I decided that you know this is the kind of job I wanted to get after I finished my PhD, and so I went all in. And stayed for basically a year, and then it um, it didn't work out. And for, fortunately, my the computer science department at Carnegie Mellon, um, to which I owe a lot of things, was gracious enough to kind of make it easy for me to come back and finish. I see. Okay, cool. Um, and and so then you you said you went to work with Cooper Neff, and yeah, what, what happened there? Well, I um I worked for Cooper Neff, and uh, um you know was a basically. Uh, an alpha researcher, the kind of guy who builds predictive strategies, right? Yeah, and right. Um, there was like internal. Um, Kubernetes was it was its unknown. It was its own firm that had been bought by a French by a big French bank, um, BNP Paribas. And right. at some point while I was there, they they wanted to merge the small group into the big bank culture. And you saw kind of an instant culture clash between the guys who worked for the small American firm versus this huge institutionalized, very bureaucratic French bank and the kind of culture broke down and a bunch of people left. And I was one of the people that left. Right. Um, and, uh, um, and then I went to a place called Citadel, um, which is a big hedge fund in Chicago. And, um, um, I wasn't there on day one, but I was one of the first people involved in the high frequency training group. And, um, we were very successful there and uh, I was there for a few years and then, you know, it was time to move on. And so I, I, uh, quit. Um, and as often in the case in this industry, I had to sit out, um, uh, a non-compete period right. Um, right. of more than a year. And then um, I uh, came out to uh, San Francisco to be one of the co-founders of Headlands. Cool. For, for our listeners who may not be familiar, um, Citadel is like one of the behemoths in the trading world. I mean, they're like up there with, I mean, I don't know, people may not know the names of any of these, like what, SAC Capital, uh, Stephen Cohen, and some of those are the big, big players, right? I mean, Citadel mm-hmm. really has, uh, I mean, I think people view Citadel kind of like they view Google and that they feel like it's just filled with a, with just a whole building full of geniuses <laughs> and it's like almost yeah, impossible there, to get a job. There. there are a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of smart people there. Um, the other interesting thing about Citadel is it does a lot of different things, right? A lot of hedge funds are really vehicles for big kind of macro investing bets by people. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Citadel is much, Citadel is incredibly diverse, right? There, there's, you know, high frequency trading and they've got lots of other activities going on. So it's a very, it's a very interesting place to be. It is actually full of really smart people as well. I had a, a, a good friend of mine, uh, went through a guy named Devin Delaire. I don't know if you ever came across, met Devin. I don't, I don't think I did. You met Devin? So he, uh, I remember he, he said he went through something like 11 rounds of interviews or something like that. <laughs> well, that, that seems crazy. When I, when I look, when I got my, when I, um, got my job, I went for one full round of interviews, which is a full day of talking to people, which is pretty grueling interviewing. And then they brought me back for another full day um, later. So that seemed like a lot to me because I, I, it seemed like a lot to me at the time, but 11, inter- 11 rounds would be crazy. Um, yeah. 
Two rounds is bad enough. So. Which, well, just on, the, just on the topic of Citadel and that kind of whole interview process, I mean, are they similar to um, – I mean, what is the reviewing process like? I mean, you hear about these sort of grueling, grueling kind of tests and questioning. Is it all whiteboarding and, like, financial stuff? Or are they giving you that sort of – those Google or Microsoft, like, brain teaser problems to see how you, her brain works? I mean, what was their process? Well, well it's, it's a mix, and Citadel wasn't unique in this regard. I've experienced this in a lot of places. I mean, basically, you talk to a bunch of people, and each person wants to figure out how smart you are, and different people have different approaches. So, and, and again, this is not unique to Citadel at all. Like, if you talk to a guy who's a physicist, he's going to, um, you know, he's going to lean towards things that are, have kind of, like, elegant, concise solutions, right? right. Um, and if you talk to a computer science guy, he might give you brain teasers too, but they're more used to thinking in terms of kind of messy, complicated, get the job done things right. um, and actual code, right? So it really depends on who you talk to. You kind of, there's no, um, there's no kind of consistent, there's, there's no kind of consistent feel or playbook that each interviewer uses. Right, right. And uh, when you were at, um, when you were at uh, uh, Cooper Neff, I mean, what did you, were you, I mean, I'm just interested in terms of like how you developed as a, uh, as a, as a strategy developer. I mean, I don't really know if there's a, there's a well-known term for it, but uh, it, what, 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 what's the common term for someone who, who works? Well, the, the, I mean, the very common term is quant, but that could mean anything because yeah. traditionally quant has been more about pricing, right. you know, derivatives than about, but that's generally, that's the way you, you say quant or QR to differentiate guys that are strictly IT. Right. Um, Right. Um, sometimes you say an alpha guy because alpha is the generic kind of term for anything that produces a, a forecast. Right, um, right. And so you might say he's an alpha guy, right? Um, but well, and, quant and, or and, QR. And for our listeners, an alpha is a term that says like excess return over the market, right? So if the market returns 3% and, and your, uh, your portfolio returns 5%, then it's 2% alpha. Is that... Yeah, I mean that's that's the, where the kind of term originated. It right. you know the that that definition kind of breaks down when you get into um, you know kind of non like shorter term trading. I'll put it that way. I mean sure. it's still conceptually related to that because you're there's definitely with everything with everything going on in the market there's a market component to it and what you're trying to capture is basically that that non market component. But you know alpha research could also be understanding how the market component drives the security because. You know, at, at the longer term horizon that you would, you know, learn about a business school, you know, you can't, if the market moves, you're not investing in a horizon where you can, where you can, you know, use the, that information to invest in the security you're going to invest in because you're, right. you're, you're not able to get in that fast. But if you're kind of trading intraday, you know, the, with the, as the market moves, things don't move instantly with it. And so understanding how that market move affects what you want is a potentially valuable thing. Um, so that is, there is this kind of formal definition of alpha that comes out of portfolio theory, but it's kind of, you know, diffused out to mean anything predictive. Right, right. You know. Um, I, I guess, you know, I have so many different directions I can go with this, but I guess we'll just, since we're talking about market, market sort of structure or prediction right now, mm -hmm. we'll just jump into this, this phase, which is, so what's your opinion on the efficient market hypothesis? Because the efficient market hypothesis would, would basically imply that there's no way that you could actually make money trading, right? There's, you know, would any, sure. any, any um, sort of uh, alpha would be eaten up by transaction costs. Really, there is no alpha. It's, it's luck or whatever. And, you know, Nassim Taleb and, uh, and, uh, the, and I guess Fooled by Randomness and the Black Swan talks a lot mm -hmm. about this, about, hey, you know, because you have like these, you say, well, this guy made these, these, these five or ten um, 
portfolio managers made money 10 years in a row. And his whole argument is like, well, if you start out with 10,000 portfolio managers and if you're half make money each year and half don't, at the end of 10 years, there's going to be some number that are going to have made money after 10 years um, just out of pure random, just, just by, you know. Uh, just by that. Sure. Well, the, uh, the, the, the notion of the digital market is kind of complicated and you have to frame it in terms of the horizon you're thinking about it. So okay. the way I think about the short-term trading is the short-term traders are the people that enforce the efficient market hypothesis. Okay. Um, so for example, you know, if, if, you know, something moves and there's an arbitrage relationship so that something else has to move with it, that, you know, so, so that if, if the market's efficient, this other thing would move with it, you know, something's actually got to move that that thing, right? Sure. And it's the it's the kind of high frequency traders. Um, and I have to introduce a caveat here that when I say high frequency traders, I don't just mean kind of the popular media definition of high frequency trader. Just kind of anyone who's trading, you know, at kind of a shorter shortish time scale. And there's a lot of different sure. ways to do that, and we'll get into that later. But um, uh, but you know, as as stuff moves around, those the kind of relationships that put things back into equilibrium. Um, are you know the, the 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 actions that make those happen are are the actual actions of kind of shorter term traders, and so there's a tiny bit of money in it for them. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it, right? So there's this kind sure. of balance where, you know, the 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 liquidity that's needed by the market kind of comes out of the short term trading, and so you know if you if you you know if you look at short enough timescales, you'll see efficiencies in the you'll see inefficiencies in the question is like kind of what can you do to capture them, and it's um. And you know how much could you actually trade them and all that kind of thing. Um, at longer time scales, the market is much much more efficient, I think. And you know if you look at the the um, if you look at the um, records of most mutual funds, the average mutual fund, you know when you include costs, significantly underperforms the market. Right. Right. And yeah, fact- and there's. There's a ton of stuff that doesn't, you know, show like there's some stuff will outperform. But if you look at the long term, you know, the the kind of generic discretionary mutual fund where there's some smart guy thinking about how to invest is worse for you than buy and hold. Right. That said, I've now been in the industry long enough to know a bunch of, you know, to know a bunch of guys that do longer term stuff where they, you know, they consistently are beating the market. Not, you know, not. um uh, not earth shatteringly, but they're consistently producing, you know, returns over the market over the course of years. And they're doing it with quantitative market, quantitative stuff. And some guys just have that knack for understanding what's going on that, um, that, uh, that, that gives them a little bit of an edge. That said, trying to figure that out is difficult because there is that problem where if you throw a thousand guys at the wall, you know, like 10 of them are going to look great even over a five year span just by chance. Right. Right. That's right. And, and, and so guess, it makes it makes the signal to noise ratio lower than you'd want for trying to evaluate that at the longer horizon. At the shorter horizon, the end is big enough that you can tell pretty quickly what's going on. Right. I mean, that's that's the I guess the real uh, draw of high frequency trading is that you know you know whether a model is working pretty quickly because you get your sample yeah. it gets it gets uh, I guess completed so quickly or you get a sufficient yeah. sample quickly enough. Right. Let me let me interject one other thing, which is kind of my. Um, uh, which kind of reflects my belief in the way, you know, free competition of markets works, which is that I've been doing this for 10 years mm-hmm. and the market at short terms is way more efficient now than it was before. Right. And like, when you say ev- shorter terms, like how, what, at, what do you mean? Even within like an hour or. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You mean even at like a second, like, right. like the predictability of something a second out now is way less than it was when I started. I yeah. wish I could go back to that world again, but I can't. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, well, and that and that's and that's big probably because of the of 
the rise of all the all the competition. I mean, there's so many firms doing high frequency trading now than there were, say, in 2000, 2001, when it was just like Getco or something, and and maybe Citadel at some point, right? I mean, now there's like hundreds of these firms running around. There's there's more people. I mean, the the various entry have definitely been lowered. Um, um, it's due to you know largely the spread of computers, but it's definitely the the like it's much harder to forecast at any horizon now than it was back in. Well, sorry, I should put that at, at, a, at a in a less than a day sense, it's it's much harder to forecast at any horizon than it was ten years ago, and that's because you know the, the more entrants you have, the more the more pressure it is, and the more those inefficiencies kind of get kind of get smoothed out. So. Right. When did you did you see a was this just been like sort of a steady decline in predictability or was there like a, a, a sort of a discontinuity at some point where things just kind of fell off a cliff? Well, it's 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 been steady, although, you know, obviously when something like 2008 happens, it kind of upends the apple cart. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, and it's and things are kind of different when it settles down again. But it's hard to know whether what's actually changed because other things could have changed that would reflect you know, a difference in that, in, in that kind of measure, if that makes any sense. Um, right. Like, you know, it could shake a, like anything where you've got like a massive shift, like in 2008, like a bunch of entrants could leave the market. There's all kinds of things that also could happen. So in general, it's been smooth. The, the one other thing I'll add to the efficiency thing is that you can basically, um, you can basically draw a line. Um, uh, let me see if I can find the right way to phrase it. There's an extremely high correlation between how much trading there is on a market and how efficient the market is. So, in in the European markets, um, mm-hmm. like we're often, you know, you'll have small, look, you know, you'll have small national markets. They're way easier to predict than 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 like England is, which is way easier to predict than the U.S. is. Right. So, I mean, it, it, does that make y- your firm want to do business over there? I mean, do you do you look for these newer markets to try and set up an operation, or are there other barriers or reasons why we just, even though it's more predictable, there are additional costs or other problems that would keep you from wanting even to bother with it? Well, you, you, I mean, there's no reason not to go after it. You always face more regulatory challenges and, you know, it scales less well, right? Because there's just less liquidity, right? Right. Um, but you definitely want to go after, I mean, there's no reason not to go after kind of everything. Right. Well, like there's things like the currency markets, which are just, just massive in scale. Um, yeah. And what are, are they just super efficient? Are they probably more efficient than say the, the equity markets? Well, yes and no. The currency markets are efficient, but the structure of the currency markets is very different because you still have a lot of um, a lot of the uh, currency trading being effectively over the counter between big banks, right? Okay. And so um, there's no. It's not like um, the CME where you've got one big futures exchange that everything trades on, and that's where the liquidity is. In the currency markets, you've got a bunch of different places where where you can trade currencies, and um, and some of them are function very kind of differently um, from a market structure point of view. Um, and so the currency market is actually kind of the most convoluted market in terms of looking at all the different places you could trade and how they relate to each other. So that's but like it's, that but it's be... awfully liquid. It's awfully liquid. Right. Well, so it sounds like that would be a challenging but interesting um, uh, opportunity for a firm that had the right type of uh, talent and technology to go out. Yeah, it's very, it's it's very, it's very interesting. There's a lot of there's a lot of work you can do on the currency markets that probably doesn't generalize to other things, but it's probably very, you know very good for the currency markets. Right, right. Um, what do you, well, let's talk a little bit about the secrecy of the industry, because I think that might be kind of a fun thing to, sure. to get into. So you, you said that's probably what you're, probably about your least favorite um, aspect of the industry, is the fact that you really can't talk about it to your friends or any other colleagues or anything? Yeah, well, I, I mean, because I, I, you know, I, I, went, I went through kind of, I've 
have an academic background and, you know, when you figure something out cool, you're, you know, I mean, you, the whole point of it is that you can tell other people, right? Yeah. Um, and now, the, you know, if you figure out something cool, you want to tell as few people as you can. Um, yeah, <laughs> which must kill you, right? I mean, you know, it just, you just like, you're just dying to share this, this great insight. And uh, there's just, you can't, you can tell like what, one or two people maybe, you know? Yeah, yeah it depends, depends on the structure of the firm and depends on all kinds of things. But yeah, it really, yeah, the number of people I can talk to about stuff is very limited. It makes it important to pick your coworkers well. Yeah, well, I, you know, it, it, you know it's, it's, it's kind of funny how it affects my relationship with, uh, with Ken, who, like, like I mentioned, yeah. works, works for you guys. You know, I, basically, I, you know, I ask him how things are going, and he's like, yeah, good, 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 yeah. And I'm like, that's, that's all you got? <laughs> he's like, pretty much all yeah. I can say. You know, he just kind of laughs. He's just like, yeah, things are going good. And I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'll just tell you what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the thing is, you'd think it would feel cool to be secret and mysterious all the time. Right. Like, but it's, it's not, it's just, you, you, it's, you just have no choice, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it makes sense. So do you feel that, you know, because the, the competition is that, is there a lot of, um, uh, I guess, uh, strategists or developers jumping from firm to firm where they're literally stealing um, uh, uh, strategies or code that are directly impacting the previous firms? I mean, is this something that, that is sort of like because the startup world, we all, one of the biggest, the first myths that I think um, startup founders have to get over is that the idea of being in stealth. Like people, it's going to be really unlikely that someone's going to steal your idea. That what you really have to worry about is that you're a probably not even going to do the idea that you're going to quit. Yeah. So you want to tell people just to keep maybe bring other people into it, or or that you're working on the wrong idea. That idea that's just wrong. So you want to talk to customers and investors. You just want to talk to a lot of people, and and and, and so you kind of it's like. You're worrying about the wrong risk, but and I'm wondering like how real is the risk that there's someone from your firm who's just going to take off, go start another firm, get funding or, or whatever, and then just sort of like deplete the alpha that's available to your strategies. Well, that, I mean that's a very real risk. Most of the fine, most of the competitive space are located in New York and Chicago, and most of them have pretty draconian non-competes for people, right? So right. almost anybody who's good, you know, can't walk away and work, you know, it has to sit out a year or more or two sometimes. Um, right. And so it's a, it's a real problem, but you've got to balance it out against the fact that like you can't enslave somebody. If somebody wants to work somewhere else, you can't, you know, surgically remove all the knowledge they have in the brain. Right. Um, right. So it's a, it's a balance about what, you know, is reasonable for people to go and do because with another job versus people, you know, like memorizing your code and walking out with it and just kind of reduplicating it somewhere else. Um, right. It's a really, you know, it's a really kind of messy problem. There's no real good solution to it, I don't think. Well, the, the one thing that might seem to um, limit that is the fact that when you're trading really short term, the lifetime of a strategy is usually fairly limited, right? I mean, you, you, whereas like you're trading a long-term strategy, you might be trading a strategy for 10 years. If you're trading a medium-term strategy, it might work for a couple years or something. If you're trading like a, a strategy, a real high-frequency tra trading strategy, it might might start to, you know, if you don't re-optimize it or work on some parameters or do different things with after a couple of weeks, it starts to die or every week. And then after well, that, I mean, it might just go. There's some truth to that, although, of course, the reality is more mixed. There's some stuff that's kind of consistently that kind of doesn't go away, but, you know, there is some stuff that comes and goes. And so that's, there's definitely truth to that. That's one of the reasons behind the non-competes is that, you know, if you, if you sit out for a year, by the time you get back into it, that's the kind of exact thing you know how to do. doesn't really, um, doesn't really, um, 
isn't doesn't really work the same way and you've got to kind of in, innovate from scratch and it's kind of the situation you want is that and that's kind of the situation that happened to me where i sat out for a long time for 18 months and when i came back it was a totally different world and i had to start from scratch basically and figure out a whole bunch of stuff all over again yeah that's a, a friend of mine was in the same situation i think he sat out for like two years and he felt like the whole world, all the advantages that he had, all the insights that he thought were sort of unique to him and, and uh, maybe the people he were working with, it was just sort of common knowledge. It was not, it was, it had just sort of completely eroded. The half-life was, like you said, like, you know, a year or something or, or a year and a half. So it's interesting. So you got to, because, because it's so competitive, um, you got to constantly be, um, I guess, evolving and adapting and thinking of new stuff. Um, yeah, no, you, 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 um, yeah, my job is not to manage what's already there. My job is to figure out, you know, what we need to do next. Is that stressful? I mean, the idea that, you know, I, you have to come up with some good, new good ideas like every month, if not every week. Like the, if you don't find something new or a few strategies that are new and have promise that you're just kind of, you're going to be dead, that it's just going to, you know. Well, it's not, I mean, it's not, what, it's not, you know, you don't feel like if you don't figure out something every week, you're going to be out on the street. It's not quite that. Rapid, but but yeah, no, it's it's. I think it's it's not a creative endeavor in the sense of writing, but you know, you are sitting down with a blank page, and you've got to figure out like what can I do that you know lets me see into the future a little bit better than I can do than I used to be able to do, and you've got to kind of to come to that blank page, you know, again and again and again and again. So it's both kind of exciting and you know scary at the same time. Can can you talk at all about the kind of t- that you would use like would you use like MATLAB or R or is everything custom build internal stuff well for a lot of stuff you know you custom build C++ tools right although mm-hmm. different companies have different shops like some some places are Java shops right? Um, right I use R a lot I really like R because it's it's got so many statistical tools built in and so it's kind of a perfect you know prototyping thing right. um, that said you know if you're working with really massive data sets it, it kind of shows it's limitations, and so, but it's a good place to kind of get a feel for what's going on before you really dive into, you know, building the custom solution. Right, right. And uh, what what kind of of people do you look for when you're hiring that can have this sort of have these creative insights, or both quantitative in nature and also sort of creative in nature? Because I think. I mean, not to say that quantitative people aren't creative by any means, but that there's a certain type of creativity um, that would be necessary for this. And um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think you just have to look at someone who's kind of like a poet and a physicist at the same time. Yeah, to be honest, this is something I and uh, you know other people I know talk about all the time, and I don't have a good answer for it. Um, <laughs> is, 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 is it like pornography? You know it when you see it? Like you know no, you no, it because you're, you're wrong all the time. I'm wrong all the time. Um, oh, really? So you get some guy, uh, oh, this guy's going to be great. He's really sharp and no, he, he, he seems to understand the, the tools of the trade and then he just get, he gets, he gets nothing. He doesn't bring up. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, the hit rate, you know, the, the hit rate is lower than you think it is for guys that really can do the creative side of it. Like finding guys that can kind of competently implement stuff is pretty easy. It's guys that right. have that extra spark that like really lets them, you know, push um, what you're doing in kind of new directions that you don't hand them already. That's really hard. And it takes a long time to develop that too. I mean, it takes years. So you kind of don't know if somebody's going to be good at it for a long time. Um, so it's a really hard problem. And I've, I've uh, thought about, it's a really hard problem, but also like at a higher level, it's a hard problem to get data on, right? Sure. Because how many people do you get to hire? Not very many, right? 
I mean, it's in the like, you know, tens if you're lucky, right? And right. so, you know, whatever internal model you're building that maps your your interview your interview onto their success, right? You're doing it with a pretty small n, and so it's hard to, and that n is like spread out across years and years and years, so it's kind of hard to, it's hard to really model that thing in, internally in your head. So, you know, my my approach to it has kind of changed over the years. Um, but I, I, man, I wish I had answered that question. It's, uh, <laughs> well, how did you, well, how has it evolved? Were you initially looking for people who are PhDs in physics or math or people who were just like street smart traders who knew basic statistics and could maybe, um, uh, figure out a way to articulate their ideas in a quantitative way? I mean, how did it, yeah. How did it well, evolve? you've got to approach all those guys differently. So guys that have a lot of finance experience, the big question is the way they think now, can they ever think in a different way? Right. Because right. often people get locked into, into how they think about a problem, and it's and if you want them, and you know when you hire them, you need them to think in a different way. And so the best scenario is when they can take what they already know and apply it, but kind of in this different framework, and then and then you get kind of this orthogonality that comes out of the previous experience, but that kind of works within what you need to do, right? That's hard though, and and a lot of people I've I've seen who walk down that path don't do very well because they have a very set way of thinking about the problem with guys that are PhDs, right? The, you, they don't have that issue, but the real question is like, you know, how do you, it's not easy to get a PhD, but you know, there's kind of a, there's kind of an algorithm to it, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, you, you know, there's like, there is, it is a, like, there's a maze. And if you walk through the maze, you kind of come out with a PhD at the end. Right. But it doesn't kind of prove to me that you can do interesting independent research and really drive a problem on your own. Right. And so it, I don't, it's hard to, you know, you, you ask questions that you try to get, get out of people, but it's just a, it's just a really noisy problem. It kind of reminds me of, oh, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, and then you talk to guys that are, that are undergrads, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been around for a while, but when I think back to what I was like when I was 22, right, I, I was an idiot. And so, <laughs> Yeah. Like it's hard like trying to pull out, you know, how good a guy's gonna be five years enough from talking to a to twenty two year old, that's that's even that's even harder, you know. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. It's kinda of like watching the NFL combine where you see them testing these yeah. athletes on their forty yard dash and their vertical jump and how much they can bench press two hundred and twenty five pounds and, and, and run yeah. some basic routes. But it's like it's it's so those are such isolated skills. I mean, like you're you're getting a quarterback and you're testing his vertical leap. You're like, what the hell does that have to do with anything? You yeah. Know, yeah. Well, the other the other thing, I mean, the other interesting thing about this, not to to deviate a little bit from the combine, is you know, if you look at Moneyball, right? Mm-hmm. You know, anytime people have put the gut feelings of scouts against like good quantitative models, quantitative models win. The quantitative models win. Now that that's not that's not as um like it's a different story in football where like football and basketball where it's hard to have a quantitative model, but in baseball it's actually pretty straightforward because it's really linear the performance of the. Like performance of individual players is basically linear, but that was one of the lessons is that you think you know what works, but you know you never really know what works until you actually kind of test it. Um, um, and so that that thought, you know, given that there's no way to kind of quantify the way guys, that given that there's no like there's no you know equivalent data set on job candidates you interview that matches up to what you would have as like a as a baseball scout, right? It 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 you know scares me and makes me kind of constantly question the things that I think I know are true. So, do you, so when you are looking for candidates, are you therefore yeah. kind of open? Whether somebody's a dropout undergrad or a master's or whatever, I mean, do you, are you only looking for people from P, from MIT and Stanford, or are you 
open to all talking to all kinds of people if they have an interesting uh, uh, story. Yeah. So this is a good this is a good this is a good point for me to interject my plug, which is that um, uh, um, my current company, Headlands Technologies, is located in San Francisco. Um, anybody who's interested in talking to us, um, send you can send a resume to careers at headlandstech.com. Um, is it okay if I plug that? Absolutely. And if for some reason okay. you didn't hear that or missed that wrong, just send an email to me and I'll forward it on to okay. James. <laughs> and and again, we'll we'll be we'll probably be deluged with people and we'll only you know, we'll only end up talking to like five of them, but anybody who's, you know, who's interested, I could talk a little more about particularly what we're looking for. You know, that's the, that's the place to get into contact, contact. Um, that's the place to get into contact with. As far as formal requirements, I don't, I mean, like, um, in the groups that I've been in, some of the smartest guys are PhDs. Some of the smartest guys were really smart undergrad guys from state schools. My undergrad was at the University of Wisconsin, for example. Um, and so I don't have any preconceived notion about, you know, what is going on. In fact, my guess is that places like MIT and Stanford are probably slightly over-recruited. Um, right. So, because you're competing. I've had, I, you know, um, I, the guys at Uber, which is a, uh, one of my clients that I work with, and they say yeah. that, that they don't even go and try and hire out of Stanford because that's just been so picked over by uh, Facebook and, and Google. Yeah. Like, they do internships starting after freshman year. So, we yeah. start showing up their junior our senior year, you're getting the worst. Like, the, the people who they had to bring in to do coding tests were just awful. And so, they now yeah. they, they're like, well, we're just going to go to a different part of the country and, and not even yeah. look at those. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I don't think we're, I mean, we'll, we'll still go to Stanford partially because for us, it's a different issue because we have no real competitors in our space in the Bay Area. Right. Um, and so if people are particularly fascinated by this space, you know, they, you know, they'll be happy to talk to us. It's not like it's like with Uber, their position is they're offering um, what they're offering as employer is similar to what probably 50 other employers are offering, you know, in right. terms of the perceived upside and the coolness of the job and everything. And so, yeah, it's much harder to differentiate themselves. We're in a slightly different position with a little bit of a built in advantage. Um, right. That said, you know, if you look at Stanford, and stuff like, you know, the firms from Chicago and New York are certainly going to recruit there. Um, and so, you know, that, like, you know, that it's not, that brings that whole problem, that brings a similar problem back to roost for us again. Um, but, you know, we're, we're a small firm and we're kind of open to anything. Um, I don't have, like, different people, different, like, it, obviously somebody with a PhD brings a different set of qualifications than somebody, um, uh, who dropped out, you know, who dropped out or was an undergrad. And so like the kind of things that people start doing right away are, are different, but the, the, and the past might look very different, but I've seen people from, from multiple backgrounds like that kind of converge in the same place eventually. Well, okay. So then what kind of people are you looking for? What kind of um, qualities are you looking for? Um, if I had to, if I had to pick um, people with people who are good coders and with interesting um, data mining experience, hopefully practical, but not necessarily, you know, but if they're coming straight out of school, you know, more theoretical. And then, you know, the, and then the big spark of somebody who's able to like, you know, creatively identify, you know, where there's value and kind of go after it. Right. Is there other personality traits that you look for? Um, yeah, this is an industry, you know, that's got, there's a lot of hyper competitive people in it. You know, we're, we're going to err on the side of people that are easy to work with, I guess. Um, but being motivated and passionate, you know, I think it's really important. Although, by saying that, I probably sound like every other HR recruiter in the history of mankind. <laughs> right. Well, what's like who doesn't like like what employer doesn't want a passionate employee? Like you know. 
Well, okay, so I, then I got a couple questions on that line. Okay, so, uh, you know, why, why would I want to work at, at, at Headlands? I mean, what's your, what's your pitch? I mean, what's cool about it or what's the – I mean, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm being recruited by Square and Stripe and Uber and Google or whatever, I mean, you know, what, what, what's, what, what, makes, what would make me want to um, work with you guys or apply for you? Um, apply here's, for the, here's, here's, here's the pitch. It's one of the most interesting data problems in the world. We're in San Francisco, and um, it's a, and we're good, smart people to work with, and small, and there's lots of upside. What's what's a day in the life? Oh, okay. First of all, before I get that, oh, yeah. What is the upside? I mean, so if I, if you get a job at a um, at a uh, at a startup or of some kind, or even you know a larger, mm-hmm. more established startup, you're going to get you're going to yeah. get uh, if it's really early, you're gonna, you might get some kind of founders equity, but most likely you're going to get options. So it's very clear, kind of okay. If there's some sort of an exit, you know have a pretty good sense of like what's going to happen, which could be really good financially. So how, how does the, how does the compensation work for a high frequency trade? Well, I, I, different firms have completely different, um, uh, structures. Right. And so I, I won't go into detail about the, about kind of the way we do it. Um, but I will say that, um, uh, um, the, um, how do I say this? Um, I mean, usually it comes down to some notion of link to performance, right? So if you, it's, I mean, just in general, it's a well-paying industry to begin with, but if you kind of deliver real value that like flows through the bottom line, you know, usually some, you know, some notion of that gets reflected back on you. Um, and again, like some places, you know, set up kind of formal structures like that, um, you know, where you kind of run your own, where you kind of run your own thing and then you get some cut of it. It's more like a, much more of like a mercenary relationship. We don't really operate that way because we're, we're kind of one unit. Um, but you know, there is some notion of the, of, you know, linking what's going on to the value of the people that they, that they deliver. Does that, and I mean, I'm trying to be yeah. vague, but, but, uh, <laughs> meaningful. Right. right. Okay. So there's basically discretionary bonuses that are sort of linked to your performance. Basically, basically, but usually they're conceptually linked to, you know, kind of the, the value people deliver, but it's a difficult problem to sort out the value that people deliver, you know, because if you, if you have some guy, you know, if you have, five guys that like work for, you know, six years to build a strategy and, and they get the strategy to break even. And then some guy comes along and adds one tiny thing that all of a sudden makes it super profitable. Right. Mm -hmm. That last guy did not add most of the value, you know, right. He added like a small part of the value. Um, and so it's kind of untangling that is really difficult, but I mean, it's kind of discretionary in the same way that like, I guess option grants would be discretionary. Right. Well, so what is a, yeah, what's a day in the life of, uh, of a sort of a, an algorithmic trader strategy developer, you know, if I come in the morning, what am I in throughout the day? What am I doing? Um, well, so basically, um, uh, so here's the loop I want people to, I like, I like people to be in, which is to say, okay, um, I'm going to start in the afternoon and then I'll go through the, I'll, I won't start when sure. you come in. I'll start in the afternoon. Right. Okay. So at some point in the afternoon, you know, you've been thinking and you've got, you want to try an experiment. You, you say, I have idea X or I have some variant of idea Y. So you spend a couple hours to code it up and then you kind of fire off data jobs overnight. And then um, in the next morning you come in and the data's there and either A, you decide that you, what you did was good and you need to kind of push into production or B, you kind of need to iterate again. So to push into production, then you kind of figure out how to actually get it to work with everything else and push it into production. And then you spend, as you accumulate stuff that's in production, you spend some time um, kind of making sure it keeps working um, and stuff. Um, but then most of the time is spent like generating the ideas that you want, that you want to try. Right, right. And, and so in the morning is 
what prepare like do, you know doing some data analysis or just uh, what 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 do your early early part of the days look like? Well, ideally, if you've got a bunch of data, when you come into the morning, you can kind of because you know when you're optimizing research, you got to think about machine time and people time, right? Okay. And so machine, like, you know, people time is really valuable. And so like if you, for certain kinds of experiments, it takes a lot of machine time. And so you want that to happen while you're sleeping or, I see. or you right. know, or at a bar or whatever. Right. And then in the morning, you like, you know, the, the bunch of data is there and you kind of take a look at it. So that's kind of the ideal cycle to have. Of course, nothing actually works that way all the time. Um, but that's kind of the ideal. Right. Now you, you mentioned that you, you, you were looking for people who have some, who had some kind of a background or who have some kind of a background in um, data mining, um, which yeah. for depending, I mean, I guess that could mean a lot of things. It could mean uh, any number of algorithms, I guess, you could, neural nets to, to decision trees, to regressions, I mean, well, you know, to uh, support vector, I mean, whatever. I mean, what, uh, I, mean, I mean, it seems to be it implies a certain amount of um, work in machine learning in general. I mean, what are your thoughts in terms of machine learning? Because machine learning, I hear a lot of people complain that it's, it's, it's really, easy to overfit, especially when you're talking about financial data. Sure. Well, um, uh, just let me add one thing, which is that, so machine learning, there are, there are problem people, technique people. Technique people yeah. have like one hammer and like they want to hit everything with the same hammer. Problem people just care about problems and they bring whatever technique they need to do it, right? Our business forces me more to be a problem person than a technique person. So there are a lot of techniques that I think are really cool that aren't kind of feasible for me to use. Um, but, you know, understanding when you're overfitting the data and when you're not is probably the biggest challenge I face every day. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 uh, that seems to be like when you talk to um, algorithmic traders and firms, like that, they all go through that process of mm -hmm. being fooled uh -huh. by overfitting. Like they didn't test the robustness and they didn't, you know, mm -hmm. uh, do the, the stability testing of parameters. And so it's like, it seems like that's every, that's like the learning curve everyone has to go through. And I guess what you're saying is it never goes away. You always have to fight it. Well, you want, I mean, you get better at doing it, right? Right. But it's always hard. I mean, you know, it's, it's always hard. So, right, but I mean, right. you know, it's, it's, it's a skill and part of the skill is a formal set of techniques and part of the skill is an, is an, is a kind of a, a like an informal understanding of where the data is going to screw you. Right. Right. Um, right. Well, you know, uh, we had a, a, we did an interesting interview not too long ago with the guys who did um, Kaggle. I don't know if you've uh, have heard of Kaggle. Um, no. They, they, okay. What they do is they allow, um, they host like a Netflix style prize. Do you, you remember the Netflix? Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So any company come on and say, here's our problem and here's our data. Yeah. And, they, and they work with Kaggle to set up the rules and how the competition works. Yeah. And then people come on. So, um, one of the uh, one of the things that was interesting is they said that uh, that the people who tended to do the best were not people yeah. who were formalist, like you say. They want to say, "Hey, I'm a Bayesian guy, and that's what I do," yeah. or "I'm going to prove that this is the optimal technique." They were kind of like a lot of them would be like the electrical engineer types, or people who who, who would kind of get real down and dirty with the stuff and try tons of stuff and be really persistent. Yep. Um, so, a couple questions I have for you is. Would you would you ever would you think hosting like some kind of a private competition on a on a place like Kaggle would be a good way to try and find top recruits? It, it is a it's a difficult problem for us because we can't actually give anybody a problem that's of real interest to us. Okay, you couldn't say you couldn't say well this is data from six months ago or whatever. This is data that say maybe n n they're not solving a problem that you, that necessarily you need solved, but it's like okay this is. Uh, a year worth of data, six months worth of data for some number of symbols, and you just kind of give them random, you kind of figure out a way so that's kind of hidden so people can't look ahead and know what the, the time series is for and say, okay, let's yeah. see what people come up with and see if they can do No, that. I mean, we could create a toy problem. That would be interesting. Right. 
Well, my point is we can't actually. So and so, yeah, definitely. That's that's definitely something we're thinking about doing down the road. Um, right. But it's interesting because we can't actually like Netflix actually wanted them to solve the problem. Right, 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 right. So I was just thinking of, of Kaggle as, as I guess, a, a sort of a, uh, I don't know, I guess, a, yeah, like you said, like a, a toy problem, test, you know, way to, way to test people's ability. Yeah. So, 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 um, in, so in, in that sense, we could do it. We've definitely talked about it. We probably will do it at some point. Right, right. So um, let's see, what else can I get into? Um, hmm. uh, I guess I might want to ask you a little bit about, about your, uh, I'm going to go back from the beginning, something you talked about we didn't really get to get into, is that your, your swarm agent uh, theory stuff. I mean, did, mm-hmm. does any of that stuff come into, is that something that was just a neat uh, thing you did in the past, or is there any, is that come into stuff that you do now? Well, the, conceptually it comes into it all the time. Practically, I mean, if you look at the way the kind of Santa Fe Institute thinks about things, their basic idea is to say, okay, we're sick of everybody linearizing the problem. How do we solve, how do we model these things while linearizing them, right? That's like their, it's kind of their basic drive behind everything that they do. The problem is it becomes really hard to get effective tools that don't linearize the problem. And so a lot of the tools that they use, like they have, they, they'll have these, they'll do these interesting simulations and try to calibrate the simulations using kind of nonlinear optimization to, to match some criteria that they have. And then they'll draw some conclusion back behind that. That basic approach has promise and some value, but it's really, really, really hard to get right. Um, right. So it's like, it's, you know, it's more of an issue of kind of informing how you think about the problem than handing you a set of tools to really go nuts with. Um, right. Although again, you know, there's, you know, you never know. Um, like I haven't run out of the list of ideas yet of stuff to, right. to work on. And so that's still on the list actually to go more deeper into that. <laughs> right. Right. Now you, you, you mentioned that you use C plus plus for a lot of your development is, is, do you think that's really important? I mean, or do you think that you could get away with doing Java or .NET for this kind of stuff? Um, .NET, I don't have experience with. There are lots of shops that are Java shops, and they do okay. A lot of it mm-hmm. depends on the, the trading you're, you're doing. Like, you know, like, how is this? Um, you know, like, there are trades in which nanoseconds matter, mm-hmm. but that's not true of all the trades, right? Right. And so... You know, if you really, really, really have to be first to react to something, you have to do it in C. Um, uh, all, but, you know, there's lots of niches where you're trading intraday that's not, where that's kind of not the, that's not the issue. And the trade-off you get with, you know, faster development and stuff may be worth it to, to not use C++. So I just say one quick story. So when I was, um, when, in my first job, I was talking to my boss and the, somebody had done um, a bake-off of all the programming languages to see which was the fastest one. Right. And OCaml one of all things. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so we said, okay, we need to throw everything away and rewrite an OCaml. They will never be able to fire us. <laughs> right, right. Yes, forever job security because they never find anyone who understands OCaml. Because I don't think there's yes. a book. There, there's no, there's no o- O'Reilly book on OCaml, I don't think. No, no, there are books. And, I mean, there are books and stuff. There are people that understand it. But I mean, it's just so, most people are so used to thinking in terms of, you know, the, you know, C style languages that anything functional is really. Like I can't, I, I, uh, during part of my um, break, I taught myself Haskell, right? But I can't imagine writing the kind of code I write now in Haskell. It just, it would, I'm sure it could be done, but with Haskell, it's more like if you, I don't know, it, it's, I'm sure it could be done, but it, I just, it's difficult for you to imagine writing a whole system like that. So. What, what do you think? I mean, because does that just mean like any functional, pure, pure functional language like Lisp or in Haskell, or is there a reason for Haskell in particular you think it would be difficult? Oh, oh no, just any functional language. 
right. just because again, it's, you know, you have, you have these habits of, you know, I've been programming for on and off for like 30 years now. And right. so, um, the habits you build up, I mean, starting with basic on Apple II and stuff. So the habits you build up with, with those kinds of languages, right. It's just, it's just a natural way you think. Right. And if you, you know, been raised from birth in some kind of crazy dystopia where the only programming language you ever saw was, you know, ML or, or uh, Haskell, like it might come naturally to you. Um, right. 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 Yeah. Cause you're, you're talking about the, the speeds of trades because it's a, a while back we just referred to as high frequency, but now they're like categories of high frequency, right? They call it like ultra high frequency or, you know, are just regular. Well, high well, frequency. There, I mean, there are no categories. They're just, they're just different groups and different groups do different things. Right. Right. So, um, you know, one thing that I've heard uh, companies doing, I mean, this isn't, this isn't new now, but I remember back in 2007, mm-hmm. I was first starting to hear about it, or 2006, was the using of the GPUs um, to increase speed. I mean, do you, guys, do you guys worry about doing stuff like that? Um, we talked about it. I can't really comment any more than that. Okay. Fair enough. I, I knew there were going to be the, uh, the, the no comment section. So actually, we've done a pretty good job. I don't think I've uh, asked too many questions that you can answer. Um, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, but but, but I'll, I'll, the one thing I'll say is that like different trades have kind of different latency dependencies, right? Right, right, right. And so the FPGAs are like, I mean, it's a huge, because how much harder it is to write like a really complex dynamic strategy in C and then like, you know, have it constantly updated on like an FPGA, right? Yeah. Right. It's FPGA, right? Floating point gateway, right? Um, it's, it's, um, um, it's uh, like it, it's, it lends itself to a certain kind of strategy. I'll put it that way. Right, right. Um, one thing I'd like to ask you about is the uh, the perception that HFT is somehow evil, or that it's um, you know, because you you hear that some of the ills of Wall Street are blamed on high frequency mm-hmm. trading. It's like, oh, it's so yeah. unstable now. It's crazy volatility because of these high frequency traders. I mean, um. I think you tell by the way I'm asking the question, my feeling about it, but I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on it. Well, so, I mean, I, you know, obviously people have to take what I say with a grain of salt, um, but I have a couple things to say about it. First is that, intriguingly, pre-2008, the popular wisdom was that high-frequency trading, computerized trading, were reducing volatility. Okay. And so if you look at the VIX from basically the dot-com crash until 2008, mm-hmm. it steadily declines. Wow. Okay. Um, and again, and the fraction of trading that's on my computer increased significantly during that time. Right? Right. Um, then 2008 happens, which for all kinds of macro reasons through, you know, unprecedented levels of volatility in the world, which has not yet settled down. Um, and so to me, more of the volatility is attributable to like the crazy macro environment. Like people take the possibility that Greece is going to withdraw from the Euro with a grain of salt today. Right. That would have been like the biggest economic story between the years 2003 and 2006. <laughs> and now right. people aren't even talking about it, right? Because there's so much. The, the echoes of 2008 are still so strong, right? Um, uh, but it is interesting because really pre-2008, that's what people, people weren't happy about it either because less volatility means less trading opportunities, kind of, you know, right. longer horizons, right? And so people were blaming HFT for reducing the profitability of long-term strategies by reducing volatility. Um, See. One thing oh. that seemed to me about well, go on. I'll, I'll, I'll ask my question. I guess so. Go on. Oh, I was going to say. So, as far as what's going on now, um, it's one of the, it is it, it one of the, it is one of those things where you see a lot of you see a lot of articles that basically feel like we don't know how, we don't know why, but we know it's HFT. And I haven't seen a single article that's actually convincingly backed up 
the claim that HFT is causing problems at all. There have been some academic studies, and the academic studies range from kind of it's a mixed blessing to it's reducing spreads and making trading easier for people, cheaper for the average investor. Um, but the kind of conclusions that everybody assumes are true, I've never actually seen backed up with evidence. The, um, the flash crash study done by the SEC and the CF, um, CFTC, um, you know, like if they pinned blame on something, it was on, it wasn't on HFT, it was on like a big order that came in and kind of threw everything out of whack. It's still kind of unclear what happened, but, um, but, but a lot of conventional wisdom is that the, the HF, the high frequency liquidity disappeared when that happened. But, you know, when I look at that event, like the HF liquidity disappeared, but everybody else's liquidity disappeared as well. Like, Right. When, pe- when people think about trading lines in high frequency, they realize they're a huge fraction of the trades in the market, but they're not as big a fraction of the liquidity. Yeah, well, I, um, you know, I, for, for, for if, if I'm, say, a longer-term trader and then say that yeah. – or not even a longer-term trader. Let's say that I'm a trader who – I put on a few trades a week or even a few trades a day. Okay. I mean, what do I care what you guys are trading in and out of inside of, inside of one minute or inside of 10 minutes? Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, from the point of view of an individual trader, I genuinely believe HT is a big blessing because if you look at the average spread – um, since 2000, it's come down dramatically. Right, 2000. I mean, you're talking. I mean, I guess right around the time is we went from like eights and sixteenths to uh, to pennies, right? I mean, before then was yeah, a little bit before then, but yeah, yeah, about that time, yeah. But, I mean, but, I'm, is, but I'm just saying, if you, if you look, if you look at the kind of average spread on the on the you know in the S&P 500, you know, it's been steadily declining over time in conjunction with the rise of um, high frequency trading. Well, and plus, if you had to put, if you did a manual trade and it went and it went down at the New York Stock Exchange and it was executed manually, it doesn't mean you're going to get filled uh, on the bid or the offer, right? I mean, sometimes they'd hold on to your offer, your your trade, and you'd kind of get jerked around a little bit. Well, it, it is true that in the, in the kind of in the old days, the specialists had a lot of power to control what happened, and they basically used that power to kind of extract money out of the market. Um, and so the the price you paid for that orderly market was you had a widespread and you had these market makers kind of sitting in the middle. Um, whereas now it's kind of, you know, people are like, it's not, it's not like the average investor is on kind of, you know, even keel with all the, you know, high, with all the, you know, you know, hugely resourced firms, but they're more than even keel than they used to be. Right. There's no kind of privileged informational advantage, except for the issues of being co-located and stuff. Right. Right. Um, I, I, okay. So I'm trying to figure out if I have any more specific uh, HFT questions. Is there anything that um, you think would be interesting to talk about that I ha- that I haven't brought up? Um, trying to think of what would be interesting. Um, well, the, the one thing I mean, yeah, um, I'm not sure where this will go, but the one thing that people kind of don't realize about the market as much is it's really an ecology of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Like when people think of HFT, they think of these guys who are making markets on. Um, uh, you know, making markets with kind of very itchy trigger fingers to cancel on kind of cash equities. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are guys like that, but you've got lots of people that, you know, have active trading strategies with horizons of a couple of minutes. You've got guys that have acting trading strategies with a, with a, with an hour. You've got like a bunch of different groups, um, all kind of doing different things. And sometimes they fall into categories because of the affordances of the technology. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But, the, but, you know, it's kind of impossible to know, really what's going on in the, in the, it's kind of impossible to know what's going on in the market because there's so many participants in it really. Um, uh, so th- I've always found that particularly interesting and it's a very opaque world because you don't know what anybody else is doing, right? You have vague right. ideas of what other people are doing. Um, and sometimes when somebody acts so weird, you can identify what they're doing over time. But you, if you act weird enough for a long enough period of time, like smart people are going to crush you 
um, unless what you're doing is really, really smart. Um, and so the, the weird behaviors tends to like get thinned out over time. Right. What, um, you, what would be the, the range of like how many trades you would want a strategy, you'd want a strategy to do a day before you, to minimal amount that you would want to execute in a day before you feel like, or the sample is, is high enough, big and large enough that you're getting a good statistical analysis of it. Oh, um, it depends. Uh, five, five trades a day would be sort of a minimum. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we. I don't. I mean, I don't think we think of the problem in that way, but that's probably vaguely right. Right. Okay. Okay. And so, but you, but you um, got to remember, different products and different kinds of strategies have naturally different holding periods. Okay. Right. And you don't want to. It's not like you're trying to only do one thing. You know. Right. 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 Huh. Interesting. So, um. I want to maybe switch gears a little bit because I think I'm I, I'm out of questions that I think I can ask you that you will be able to answer. <laughs> I have a lot of questions I wish I could I wish I could ask, have answered, but I, I know the answer is going to be I can't no comment. So um, I'll just ask you about a couple of things that are sort of real general, and and you may or may not have much to say about it, but we'll, but we'll see. So one thing that you you and I touched on in a in a sort of pre pre interview discussion was about um, Glass Steagall, and I made a I made sort of an offhand comment that. You know, Glass-Steagall was one of the problems that we have in terms of the corruption on Wall Street, or that that caused a lot of like the massive leverage, and mm-hmm. therefore the banks getting themselves in trouble because they have massive leverage, and because of you know banks that are trading firms became sort of backed by the government in some way, and they would take risks and that kind of stuff. And you you said that you didn't think Glass-Steagall was the big problem. The, the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Was a bigger problem, and let me just say one thing for for our listeners who don't know what Glass Steagall was. It was act was passed in like I don't know the Security Act of like what was it twenty nine or something. It's like something that. was in response to the depression, yeah. Right, which separated um, in in sort of like investment banks, investment banking from commercial banking. Is that right? Yep. Or convert, yep. yeah, kind of put the Chinese wall or something. You can't these can't be part of the same firm or same operation. So yeah. I only, I like to hear your comments on that. Well, so so again, I'm not an authority on this, but I don't think Glass Steagall exists in Canada or Europe. Okay. And yeah. so I like if you if you look at the experiment where because I know like a bunch of the banks in Canada do prop stuff, right? Okay. They, they didn't have kind of the problems the American banks had. The other thought experiment is like let's say that like you know Bear Stearns didn't have any depositor money at all. Okay. Let's just say that would that have changed one thing about the way it was handled financially? Right. So it wasn't deposit. It was just that they had that they had gotten themselves. In it was a systematic problem. risk they introduced into the into the trading structure. Do you think that's because these banks are doing um, are doing trades that are not uh, regulated? They're not cleared. So, like right now, if like you trade stock or we or futures, you're mm-hmm. an you're a trading firm, an individual. Like you have to make your margin call that day, and a lot of times you just you know the 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 firm the either the brokerage or the clearing firm is in real time or near real time going to keep track of like okay you have a hundred thousand dollars in the bank or have ten million dollars in your account mm-hmm. you have this much that you're expected to lose therefore we're shutting you down where banks where they're doing all these sort of like um, uh, I'm not calling, I'm not exchange traded they're called a um, when it's not exchange traded it's called what I'm blanking on the term over the counter. Over the counter, right? OTC yeah. trades. Um, yeah. So they're not really clear, right? The, the, the regulars just assuming that you know, Bank of America does a trade with Chase or something that they're big boys and they can just kind of figure it out themselves. Is that the problem? I, no, I think. I mean, so here's the basic problem with all financial crises in history, right? So I'm going to gargantuanly overgeneralize here. It's that people start to systematically underestimate like tail risk. Right. And so what that leads to is accumulating more and more risk, right? 
and so in the case of the ultimately, ultimately they're selling puts in a sense, right? Yeah, basically, they, you, that's exactly what it comes down to. Um, you might want to explain that to your audience, though. I'm not sure they. Okay, so I, I know that was that was kind of an inside baseball uh, phrase I threw out there. So uh, essentially, call uh, there's your call and put options, and call options are the right to buy uh, to buy uh, an asset at a certain price. So like call options on Google, and put is the right to sell them, and put it, and buying puts is essentially like buying insurance. So you're right to. Um, so you might buy a put if you own a lot of Google stock and you think Google might lose a lot of value. Rather than selling your stock, you might just buy a put as a protection. So if you're selling puts, you're essentially like an, you're essentially selling insurance. You're like an insurance company, and yeah. when you're selling a bunch of insurance, thinking that okay, I'm going to insure all these people who live along the coast because I don't think there's any way we're going to have a hurricane, and then a hurricane hits, and then you're out of business. Yeah. So I mean, people, I like, I, I know people that describe it as like picking nickels in front of a bulldozer. Um, <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> because because the, the point is, like, you know, if you think about to the, the long-term capital management thing, like, all these trades were, they were trying to get a little bit extra return, and they were taking on this massive tail risk that they completely misestimated. There's, a, there's another issue here, which is that the incentive of the, of the, man, of the manager is different than the incentive of the company, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if the, if the manager can fool somebody, can fool his superiors into thinking that there's no risk, you know, he's got a one-sided option. If it works, he's rich. And he's done. Right, right. If right. it fails, the company goes up, and he looks for a new job. Right. right. So that that asymmetrical incentive thing is built into into the, the into every manager in the in the you know every manager in every financial firm everywhere, and that's why risk control is kind of so important. Um, but even that, because if you look at the guys who were the top guys in the investment banks, right? Most of their net worth was tied up in the value of the investment banks, um, and they still blew it, right? But to me, the real problem was that you, you had these, you had these crazy, you know, this crazy amount of risk that these companies were taking on and holding on to. And a part of it, in the particular case of 2008, it was because there was a catastrophic misperception about the housing market, right? Um, but then once you had all that risk, once things started to go bad, because of the nature of leverage and everything, it just, it, it, like once it goes bad, it can go it can go really bad really quickly. And that's kind of the basic recipe behind every financial crisis ever, right? That's what happened in long-term capital management. They were too highly leveraged making small RB trades that then completely, when they went the other way, destroyed them. Um, in the dot-com bubble, it was different, but there was kind of a bubble. People didn't like perceive the downside risk. So people like margined up to take, you know, to take huge positions, right? And then when that, right. wiped, when that fell, it wiped out, you know, tons of stock market value. To me, that's the basic problem. If you strip out the, the um the 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 kind of you know consumer banking aspect of those banks i don't think it changes how 2008 happened at all to be frank yeah you know um well first of all i want to tell people i just mentioned this so if anyone who's interested in the long-term capital management um story uh, two great books that i read a while back a while ago i think one was called inventing money and the other one was when was called when genius failed when genius yeah, failed was more I've, of a uh, you read those yeah i've read when genius failed it's a good book yeah when genius failed it that's more like if you're not into the quantitative stuff as much. Inventing money, if I remember, recall correctly, was written more by a physicist quant, so you can imagine it's a little more quantitative, where with yeah. Genius Failed was written by like a New York Times writer or something. But, yeah. um, so uh, I think now, if, if I recall, one of the issues was that I believe, I don't know if it was Paulson or, and this is before he became the Treasury uh, Secretary, um, I don't know if he, I, I, I feel like I remember this right, but I could be wrong, but, but at least some of the banks lobbied to have their, their, their leverage that they were allowed to use to go from like 10 to 8 to 1 or 10 to 1 down to up to 40 to 1. And it was a massive <laughs> leverage that played a part in that. Yes. That, 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 again, that, that, that part of the story I don't know as well, but I, I mean, 
may may well have been like if you look back to the formula behind these stories there's always some like if you look back to the last three crises the dot-com crisis like ltcm and and this like there's always some story about why it's different right and like right. and and people and regulators buy into that story enough to let the let the the risk go crazy right because with ltcm it was like these guys are geniuses you know they know what they're doing they've made tons of money right you know nothing can go wrong with the dot-com bubble it was like the world is changing you know all this technology reinforced by the massive success of like Microsoft's and all that stuff, right? And with this thing, it was the housing market. And both sides of the political spectrum, for their own reasons, so wanted to believe in the housing bubble, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because it's the Republicans just believe it. Because the, well, but the Republicans want, want people to own houses instead of rent because they believe in that, right? They believe in property right. ownership. And the Democrats wanted more poor people in houses because they want, they want poor people to have, their, have better lives, right? And so those two things like combined to make it had this enormous pressure to believe, to keep that thing going, which while the bubble was afloat looked like that's, you know, that's what it was doing. Right. So, yeah. but, but that, that basic formula gets repeated over and over the, the specifics are different every time, but that basic formula, and, and it's a really hard thing to regulate because in a bank, if you're the risk guy, nobody likes you. Right. Because <laughs> you're the guy that has got to go to a guy that's just made, you know, $500 million for the bank and say like, you got to cut risk. Right? right. And this guy who just made $500 million for the bank said like, what are you, you know, like, you know, he he's not going to be very nice to that guy, right? Right, right, right. Um, but, and that's why it's a hard problem, and that's why I think we'll have, you know, I, I, don't think, I don't think there's a way to get rid of these crises. Like, you can kind of always put out the last fire, but there's going to be some, some new way to, to do it, right? And if you remember at the time, there were people saying, it's a bubble, it's a bubble, this is going to end poorly, and they were like, profits in the wilderness, right? Nobody would listen to them. They always say, well, you, you know, it's like, well, because there's always somebody... Um, getting upset about something that seems like sure. an edge case, yeah. and yeah. most of the time they're wrong, but occasionally they're right. Yeah. Right? There's somebody saying, yeah. "Oh, you know, you know, the world's going to explode in 2012, or there's going to be this, or going to be that," and so usually it gets ignored. Yeah. And it's it's hard to tell the people who are crackpots and the people who have deep insight into what's really happening. That's true. Although, again, this pattern has happened over and over again. Um, so it'll be interesting the next time. It, it'll be interesting when it. Ha I mean, probably won't happen for a while because we've been pretty well inoculated against it. But you know. 15 years from now, probably something like this is going to happen again. So Yeah. Yeah, I guess I should say crackpots to say alarmists. There are alarmists, yeah. <laughs> and there are people who... But, you know, you, there's you these biases. You have these things called, like... And I keep saying there's a couple different cognitive biases. There's one that's called um, normalcy bias, <laughs> where people just assume that's always going to be a certain way. Mm -hmm. And then there's this... I, I think there's also, like, a tendency for people to, to want to be contrarian or to yep. actually to be um, uh, like uh, uh, kind of uh, prophets of doom. Like there's a certain, yep. um, I don't know, draw to that. So it's like people get pulled for these very psychological reasons to these two different polar opposites, which may or may not have much to do with like uh, the correct evaluation of the data to hand or something. Yep. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's true. The, the Kahneman-Tversky stuff is, is uh, pretty awe-inspiring in terms of the way it presented the way which humans deviate from the model economic citizen. The only problem is they kind of tore down the temple without giving you a new one. Oh, sorry. What was that? I missed that. I don't quite understand. What oh, you do you know? Do you know um, Kahneman and Tversky? No. What is that? Oh, those are the those are the psychologists that basically they won the Nobel Prize in economics. Basically, they're the pioneers of behavioral economics. Oh, okay. And, was this the stuff that that guy who wrote "Think Slow, Think Fast" um, wrote that book? He it was just I think it was along those lines. But okay, go on. I'm sorry. Um, no, all I was going to say is that you know almost all the um, uh, almost all of the, uh, um, you know, 
edifice of economics is based on this notion of a very kind of specific notion of rationality. Oh, by the way, um, Thinking Fast and Slow is by Kahneman, Daniel right. Kahneman. Right. Um, and yeah, he's one of the, he's one of those guys. Um, he's okay, one of those yeah, guys that, that really... Uh, who kind of established that field or, or that, yeah. that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Kind of the real guys. Cause at the beginning, like the, the part of the issue with economics is that you, when you assume rationality, you can kind of build conclusions off of it. Um, right. when you say, when you say, well, people deviate from those assumptions in this way and that way, it becomes much harder to, to aggregate those, those deviate, like the, the kind of irrational human behavior into a reason, into a good model. Right. Right. And so you're left kind of with this choice of, of saying, you know, a clean model or no model in a way, right? And so the, 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 the challenge is that how do you bridge that? And of course, there's ways in which you can bridge it, but, um, you know, it, given that it's easy to quantify a rational actor and it's almost impossible to quantify um, an irrational actor unless you make very rigid assumptions about their irrationality, right? It becomes, it becomes a very challenging problem. So that's what I meant by, like, they kind of tore down the temple of economics in a way, but they haven't built a new one yet. Yeah, well, that's that's interesting. I mean, I, my personal uh, you know opinion, for whatever it's worth, is that behavioral economics will provide the next foundation for um, you know the, the next the edifice for economics. But of course, it's, like you said, it's much harder to do anything with that. So it just yeah. seems that the assumptions made by the economists of of you know rational behavior and, and the, it just seems to imperfect information, all these kinds of things, just make it make the math easy, but then just come to yeah. the, the, it just isn't real. The one, th the one thing I'll say is that being somebody who's, com who's completely motivated to take the behavioral economist side, there are a lot of models where even if you allow individuals to act irrationally, their aggregate behavior kind of looks rational. Not for everything, but kind of more often than you'd think, um, the, the, you can kind of get it to, to like come out of like, you know, you get something like the central limit theory that kicks in that the irrational kind of bounces on. That's not true of everything. Of course, there are clear cases where the irrationality produces kind of systematic biases and deviations from rationality even when aggregated, you know, across a huge number of individuals. Um, and that, those are the areas where it's a, it's a real interesting challenge to figure out, you know, to figure out how to, how to build economics in those areas. So. Right, right. Um, there's two more things I want to ask you about real quick. I, do, sure. you have, do you have a few more minutes or are we out of time? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Uh, uh, go ahead. Okay, so one question. Have you followed the MF Global um, story much? Um, a little bit, yeah. I was just curious what your thoughts are on that because there's like... Was it Corzine? You know, took over. Was it Man Financial, which then became MF Global, and and all these things, and then it it, it, it he ended up as, as far the way the story goes, as far as I understand it, is that they put on some big uh, trades um, mm -hmm. betting. I can't remember on on whether on the euro or something with maybe it was I think it was European I think it was I think it was European debt, but I'm not sure. Yeah, European debt, and they basically used something which is called like I, can't, I have a hard time pronouncing it, like rehypothesis or something, basically using mm -hmm. the, the money from the accounts, uh, the brokerage accounts of individuals and, or, or trading firms that had money with this mm -hmm. uh, brokerage. And at the end, they lost $1.2 or $1.6 billion. <laughs> and, then, and then, of course, I was like, you know, he's like being asked by the senators what happened. He's like, oh, I don't know. Don't ask, you know, it's not my fault. I don't know what happened. I mean, how believable from somebody inside the industry who deals with clearing firms and in, in, in real trading, how believable is that kind of explanation. You're, you're going to kill me, but I, I unfortunately I can't talk about MF Global. Oh, that's too bad. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I can't. Oh, okay. Okay. No problem. Um, how about, uh, the only thing I want to ask you is the, the recent thing that happened with uh, Jamie Dimon and what JP Morgan, which was the, yeah. um, the $2 billion 
loss that everyone yeah. freaked out about. And one thing that they said, I, th- I, I think that um, there were people who came, there were other trading firms or traders and other firms who became privy to their position, and that's why what happened happened. Did you have any information? Do you ever hear anything about more about that? No, I don't. I don't know what the. I don't know what the. I don't. Yeah, I don't actually know what the deal was. If somebody else did become privy to the position, something really hinky is going on because, again, you know that stuff shouldn't be. Um, that stuff is always confidential. Um, but um, how do I say this? Like one of the things. That, like, but uh, that is really bad if people figure out that you're sitting on huge exposure. Right, they can kind of use that. They can kind of use that against you because at that level, when you're talking about that kind of level of, of, um, of capital, you're actually you know owning some reasonable chunk of the market, and kind of everything you do, you know, can move it around or hang you out to dry, and so it can get really bad if people figure it out and kind of gang up on you at the kind of time scales that like the companies like Headlands work at. You know, we don't, we don't, you know, the positions are small and not held for long periods of time, and so it's kind of a non-issue. Right. Yeah, I, it kind of it kind of reminds me of what happened with uh, long-term capital management. With I, if I recall uh, the story, how how it went is that Goldman was called in to help, and they did a, sort of an audit and analysis to see like what what of their positions they could take off, and and the yeah. people who and the, and the Goldman people who were there looking over the books and looking over all the positions um, of 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 long-term went back, reported that back to some of the traders, and because they saw where they had weak, and then Goldman and just started, and I think they even. Got some of the other trading, uh, other investment banks started beating on them until yeah. long-term hedge call mercy, right? Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, it, they were betting on the closing of these very narrow kind of arbitrage-like um, um, price differences between similar assets, right? And right. it's an interesting question, like, because in my world, you can, like, you can kind of spook the market, but you couldn't actually um, move it because, you know, it takes so much like there's so many players and so much liquidity that like, you know, any, you'd have to invest so much capital to actually kind of alter what's going on that, you know, if it went wrong, you would kind of get wiped out. You know, it, it, does that make any sense? Right. And yeah, so I'm fascinated, by the, yeah. I'm fascinated by these cases of guys holding super long-term positions where people end up realizing it, it's only four or five players and they kind of bet against each other. And one of them can kind of like, you know, somehow shift the market in the way they want it to go because it's so alien to the kind of short-term world. Right, right. Kind of like Soros with uh, was it the Bank of London or something? I mean, he, he yeah. Well, that. again, Soros again, like that. You know, with like I said, that's that's kind of more the traditional hedge fund role is these these guys making huge macro bets, right? right. Um, um, and often, I mean, it's Soros is doing it, but it only works if other guys kind of kind of see what he's doing and kind of come in with him, you know? Um, right. But but yeah, that stuff definitely helps. I'm always kind of fascinated by because I deal in a world where. When I look at the number of market positions, like it's probably you know fifty or sixty, right? And so mm-hmm. it's like when I see cases where like two or three guys like changed everything, like the Brian Hunter Amaranth case is another interesting one. Um, I'm right. always fascinated by how that actually works. Yeah, for people who aren't familiar, he uh, Amaranth is uh, they had a it was a hedge fund, and I believe they had they built up huge positions in in oil yep. and natural gas futures back in 2007. I want to say yep. or seven, and then and then their positions were so large that when they started unwinding them, um, they started moving the market, and uh, that's what that, that's what started the implosion, I think, of uh, of uh, of oil and um, natural gas, right? Yeah. Well, something I yeah I don't remember the exact I don't remember the macro consequences how what consequences it had for the oil price kind of medium term after that, but yeah, that's what happened. Amherst had huge positions that kind of started to move against them, and you know at that point. Right. Right. Interesting. 
Well, James, I, you know, I don't uh, want to keep you forever here, and, I, and uh, I'm actually I guess I'm kind of out of questions. Everything else I want to ask you I know is off the record or <laughs> period, so, <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, I'll have to ask you maybe in 20 years when you're out of the business or the business no longer Okay, exists. yeah, yeah so at, at, at some point, although your, uh, your non-disclosure agreements with previous employers never expire, so. Ugh, right, right. Yeah. Well, you'll, you'll, you'll be on your deathbed. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> this is what really happened. Uh, well, thanks so much for uh, for coming on the show and for you know telling uh, telling the world a little bit about how uh, high frequency trading works and how you see it because I think it's a it's an interesting topic and I know um, people are always very curious about it. Yeah, so, again, I, I kind of wish I could shine a brighter light because it's it's both interesting and not kind of as mysterious and shady as people think it is. But again, due to the nature of the business, I can't you know <laughs> due to the nature of the business, I can't be as transparent as I'd like to be. So. Yeah, no, no problem. And uh, I, but uh, again, I, I appreciate you coming on. So, all right, okay. that's a wrap. We're out. Bye.